Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to this place and that you have ransomed us and that we are indeed uh, the body of Christ. Uh, and We've been grafted in uh, to the life of your Son. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might have our eyes open uh, to what it means to be in you, uh, not just this day, but always. Lord, we also pray uh, for our friends and family uh, who are in the wake of Hurricane Matthew. Uh, we pray that uh, things would be restored, above all, uh, that lives would be mended back together and that it might recover quickly and that you might even use us uh, for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray for that not only because uh, we're from the coast of South Carolina, but we currently have South Carolina refugees staying with us. And so the, the sooner they get back home, the better. Uh, and uh, so it's going to be a while. Uh, I won't tell you the full story about what... Never mind, I'm just going to leave it at, at that. But uh, So no good deed goes unpunished. Okay, so this morning uh, we are talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We talked a little bit about this when uh, we got into the book of Acts and this is the morning where you can ask the question of, you know, all the weird things that you may, if you know, if you're up at two or three in the morning and you turn the television on and you see somebody doing something strange on the TV and they say that it's the Holy Spirit, uh, then uh, this, is the, this is the place to ask uh, your question. But let's take a look at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. So Apollos has gone off to Corinth, and while he's in Corinth, Paul is cutting through uh, Ephesus, which is the capital of Asia, not the continent, but the geographic area uh, there. If you look in the back of your Bibles, there's a map of Paul's missionary journeys, probably, and the area of Asia is that uh, western section of Turkey. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve in all. And he entered the synagogue for three months and spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Source Rex. The Word of the Lord. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. Uh, you may remember that there was actually, it, it, it was a funny joke, I thought, but does anyone know the tune name to um, uh, uh, God Our Help in Ages Past? Or, I mean, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. That's what I'm thinking. Guide me. Well, leave it to the music guy, yeah, Kumranda. And when Paul Zoll was here, he snuck into the bulletin, Help Me, Kumranda. Um, <laughs> Typical Paul thing to do, but um, so I couldn't help myself with Tyrannus. Okay, so uh, Paul is coming back through after the great preacher. Uh, uh, Apollos has been there in Ephesus, but his ministry has now been sent into Corinth. And we talked about last week of the willingness of the church in Ephesus uh, to train up Apollos and to sink themselves into him and invest uh, time, talent, and treasure in his development, only to what? To send him off. 
uh, that he might minister there in Corinth, and they did that gladly. And so there's a body of believers there. We know that two of the leaders in that congregation are Priscilla and her husband Aquila, uh, but there are others. And when Paul comes into town, he meets these disciples uh, who have never, ever heard of the Holy Spirit. Uh, How is this possible? Uh, How can you claim to be a disciple and never have heard of the Holy Spirit? Well, we get a clue uh, in uh, verse 3. And he said, "Into into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now, what John are they talking about? John the Baptist, right, which was a baptism of repentance, uh, that John the Baptist was a forerunner uh, to Jesus, pointing ultimately to Jesus. And so it seems here that what he's run into are disciples not of Jesus, but disciples of John the Baptist, uh, who have somehow... Uh, We don't know how they ended up there uh, in Ephesus. Ephesus at one time, uh, interestingly enough, uh, was a pretty bustling uh, community. And uh, it used to to be a fairly significant seaport, uh, but by the time Paul got there, it had been silted in. Uh, There are all kinds of places like this. Uh, If you've ever been up by Washington, D.C., there are all these tiny little colonial towns, which used to be significant metropolitan areas that now have maybe four or 500 people in them because they used to be along the Potomac and the Rappahannock and are now silted in. And in the same way, Ephesus has become silted in, and yet uh, it still has the feeling of a pretty cosmopolitan area. And so... These disciples of John the Baptist have never uh, even heard of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, in verse 2, when he says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? has led to the false teaching that Christian initiation is in two stages. That is, you come to faith and conversion through the Lord Jesus, and then later on, you receive the Holy Spirit sort of as an extra little lanyap onto your life after becoming a Christian. Now, the strangeness of this position is that it's held both by folks who would come out of the Pentecostal or charismatic tradition, uh, but also high church and Anglo-Catholic Anglicans. Uh, I, um, I, I said this publicly, so I'll say it, I can say it here, uh, but when we had confirmation last, uh, this was the line that Bishop Murray took in his sermon when he talked about the confirmands receiving the Holy Spirit uh, by the laying on of hands, as if these children were not already filled with the Holy Spirit by their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. And uh, I told him that it was sort of like Benny Hinn in a mitre. Uh, I said, you know, that, that, it's, just, it's not biblical uh, to say that you have the authority to bestow the Holy Spirit on anyone, A. And B, it's simply not biblical. Why is it not biblical? Even though we have here in Acts chapter 19, as well as in Acts chapter 8, uh, and even in the life of Paul, uh, you remember uh, that Peter and uh, John go over to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, And they have some folks who have not received the Holy Spirit, and they lay their hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, And then after Paul's conversion, uh, Peter is told to go and lay his hands on them, and upon that, uh, Paul receives the Holy Spirit. Uh, But these are outliers. These are exceptions uh, to the biblical narrative, which is what? When do you receive the Holy Spirit of God? 
Now, I can hear some people murmuring baptism, but that's not true either. Because, for instance, we have a very interesting phrase uh, in our uh, baptismal liturgy. Uh, we say, and we bring, we, we bring to baptism those who come to him in faith. Oh, that's a little baby. I mean, what do you mean faith? Uh, well, uh, uh, just as an aside, I'll say this, but I don't want to go down this rabbit trail. Uh, I mean, what it's saying is that for those who become Christians and appropriate the faith for themselves, that's why we have something called confirmation. Baptism is not the end-all, be-all. If baptism made somebody a Christian, I ought to go to the hospital with a squirt gun and just unload, right? I just ought to make it happen. Uh, and in fact, they had a problem several years ago at the... Um, uh, Charlie Sharp's in the back. He can give me a heads up when that's happening, uh, probably violating HIPAA. But, um, but there was a case, uh, Navy Hospital in San Diego... Uh, we used to have an arrangement, I don't know if we still do, somebody who's military would probably be able to tell me this, that um, folks from the Philippines could gain American citizenship by serving in the military. And so at Navy Hospital, there are an inordinate number of Filipino nurses serving at Navy Hospital. And because of their ardent Roman Catholicism, nearly every baby that was born at Navy Hospital San Diego was baptized by the nurse and then reported to the local Catholic priest. Now, who, I mean, the parents, they didn't uh, sanction it. The nurse just kind of went in and put the whammy on them and then, uh, and then took off. Uh, but so if that were the case, I don't blame them if that's what the Bible taught or even if that's what you believed, I would do the same thing. But never do we find in the New Testament baptism and faith separated. So we will hear things like this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And we hear, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized and you will be saved. But we never ever hear, be baptized and you will be saved. Now, the whole idea of, because then you might think, well, then why in the world do we baptize babies? Well, you have to go to the Old Testament for that, the place where you probably didn't think that we would go for baptism. Uh, because the sign of entering into the covenant community of God in the Old Testament was what? Circumcision, right? Circumcision. And yet, even in the Old Testament, uh, we hear them say that you are circumcised of the flesh, but you're not circumcised of the heart. And so, uh, and that got the Israelites in trouble a couple times uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, where there was a visible marker uh, on the men uh, to say that they belong to the people of Israel. And yet, even though outwardly they may have appeared to be the people of Israel, uh, what did God care about? The circumcision of the heart, right? Outward conformity to a right, a religious right, was not enough. Now, you were still part of the people of Israel, which is why oftentimes we speak of the visible and the invisible church. If you look at the articles in the back of the prayer book, uh, the visible church, and Jesus had a parable about this, about the wheat and the tares, remember? Uh, you know, do you... Do you Pick out the weeds? Well, no, because if you do that, you're going to uproot the good stuff, the wheat. And so at the end of the day, God is going to be able to sort out the wheat and the tares. But for the time being, uh, the church is commingled, right? There, there are folks in the church that are Christians. There are folks in the church uh, that are not Christians. And that might sound judgmental, but it's true, right? Uh, we've talked a lot about folks in our culture who will readily identify with a church, 
You know, I go to the Advent or I go to IPC uh, that really don't, right? That really don't uh, go, uh, but they do have some sort of affiliation uh, uh, to it. And so it may be that, um, that that separating is even beginning now as fewer and fewer of those people are making their way uh, into the church's uh, fellowship uh, because they realize, you know what, uh, the church just isn't uh, for me. And in this, uh, in this instance, these weren't believers. I do think in Acts chapter 8, you can make the case that they were believers, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. But think of these three incidents. This one happens in Ephesus, the other one happens in Samaria, and then the issue of Paul. The work of the Holy Spirit, evidenced in the life of the believer, uh, is there for a reason. And in these cases, it's not Jewish-believing Christians. These are folks from Samaria, which according to Jewish custom, are the worst people on the face of the earth. Uh, They're worse even than Gentiles uh, because they have this synchronistic faith where they've taken sort of pagan faiths and mixed it in uh, with their Jewish faith. Uh, And that's why uh, you have situations like uh, Jesus and the woman at the well, uh, and even people willing to take an extra two days journey from Jerusalem up to places up by Galilee, they're willing to go all the way down by Jericho in order to avoid, avoid Samaria. And it's actually that road from Jericho up to Jerusalem uh, where Jesus has his parable of the Good Samaritan take place. So these are the worst of the worst. And next to them, it's who? The Gentiles, right? And so that people might see that God is working outside of the Jewish people, there are these demonstrable acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these individuals giving testimony that God indeed has called them to faith. And so these are extraordinary examples of uh, God's work uh, in the life of His people. Now, interestingly enough, when Paul came into uh, Ephesus and he's talking to these guys, uh, Paul assumed that they were believers. Uh, but the answers to his questions led him to believe otherwise. In fact, you can almost hear him saying quizzically, um, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, were, when you believed? No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Said, well, what, in what baptism were you baptized? And that's when he finds out by their admission, well, John's baptism, which is one of repentance. Uh, well, being around people who say they are Christians Uh, but it becomes evident uh, that they are not. Is this judgmental? Is it judgmental to come to a place where you say, that person is not a believer? Now, it's kind of easy if they just flat out tell you, I'm not a Christian. Uh, In fact, I've actually run into people who say, I'm not a Christian, and it turns out they are. Uh, That they have some sort of intellectual hang-up, whether they don't think that God loves them enough or that they've gone through all the right motions. And so digging underneath the surface, what you find is that the problem is uh, their ability to actually trust in God, that it becomes a trust issue uh, rather than actually uh, a, you know, no saving faith uh, in the Lord Jesus. Uh, but in the same way, uh, there have been times when I've been talking to people like Paul talking here, where it becomes very clear that these people are not Christians. Now, I'm 
if somebody says, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, praise the Lord, right? That's a testimony, right? You, I'm not going to sit there and say, no, you're not, right? I'm not going to do that. Uh, but how can you tell? How can you tell that someone's not a Christian? Well, Paul starts to do it here. When you talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ, do they say amen? When you start to talk about who Jesus is, is God in the flesh, and what He's done for us upon the cross, and God the Father raising Him from the dead. Uh, are you going to get some coffee? Yes, I would. Thank you. Such pretty parishioners at the Advent. So, so uh, and helpful too. Thank you. Um, that's my wife, for those of you who don't, don't know. Okay. Everyone's like, all the lawyers are getting salivating, being like, there's a lawsuit in this. Uh, but uh, you begin to talk about who Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. And if they look at you like a dog looking at a clock, or if they say, oh, I don't believe all that stuff, then we got a problem. And so at the worst, as I've told you before, when I run into people... Uh, I often will start talking about the gospel. Now, I don't do it all the time, uh, but I find that if they're a Christian believer, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm with you. That's great. Thanks for the encouragement. Uh, that's the worst case scenario, really. Uh, but in other cases, people have said, just said, do you really believe that that's who Jesus is? Do you really believe that He's God in the flesh, that He came and, and dwelt? And you, you don't believe that stuff about being born in a manger to a virgin, do you? And this whole crazy idea that He's going to come back to judge the living and the dead. I mean, I go to church on Sundays and I say the creed, but, you know, I've, I cross my fingers. I've actually heard people say that. I cross my fingers at the parts that I don't actually believe in. Well, uh, in that case, uh, then you do begin to evangelize them and to talk to them about uh, who uh, Jesus Christ. I've also run into situations where, and this sounds like what's happening in Ephesus, where they're using the same words but operating under completely different definitions. Right? This would be true of when the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on your door. And I've got to give it to them. I mean, I pray that God would give me the feet of a Jehovah's Witness. I mean, you have to give them credit for their willingness to put themselves out there uh, for their faith. And I was moved when I was sitting eating breakfast in Scotland and saw them set up a little booth and, uh, in the middle of a big marketplace, and, and they were engaging people as they went by in a very winsome and, and loving manner. And I just thought, you know, that puts me to shame, uh, that they would be willing to do that uh, for a deficient faith. Uh, when I'm not even willing to do it in, in a biblical faith uh, in uh, the Lord Jesus. And so here with Paul, they're, they're talking about baptism, but the baptism that Paul is talking about, Christian baptism, is different from John's baptism. In the same way, uh, when we talk about what the gospel is, uh, it's very interesting to hear the comments. Someone sent me a bumper sticker, I don't think if this person is in here, thank you, uh, recently that said... Um, Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Change the world. And I thought, yeah, that, that, wouldn't it change the world if we actually love God with all that we were and our neighbor as ourselves? Problem is, we blow it, right? Uh, we don't. So what happens? The world doesn't get changed. Uh, what changes the world? This is the Sunday school answer. 
Jesus. <laughs> right? Jesus changes the world. The Holy Spirit of God working in the hearts of individuals like here in Ephesus, calling them to faith, that's what changes the world. And that's why it is a really, uh, even though it can be a little bit um, uh, kitschy, uh, you know, the bumper sticker that says, know Jesus, K-N-O-W, no peace. And then underneath of it, no, no Jesus, N-O, no peace. Yeah. So uh, in, in, that, in that sense, yeah, that's, that's true that, that Jesus is uh, the answer. Uh, you know, that's, you know, you would see that billboard, you know, Jesus is the answer, and you would think, what's the question uh, that people are asking? Uh, but Jesus Christ being the answer uh, to changing the world. And I don't think that that is a simple, uh, shallow answer because we've seen it uh, in the world, how God has taken 12 uh, men, uh, fishermen, tax collectors, knuckleheads, uh, people who had the worst resumes on the face of the earth, um, and now, look, here we are in Birmingham, Alabama. That's crazy. There's a wonderful accusation, I think we've already talked about it, here in the book of Acts when uh, the disciples are accused of what? The world has been turned upside down by these people. I mean, when was the last time somebody said that about us? Right? They were accusing them of something, but it turned out to be a wonderful uh, acknowledgement that, in fact, the gospel was changing people's lives. Now, uh, in the New Testament, when it comes to baptism, those who have been baptized have received the Spirit. Now, I do think that you see glimpses of infant baptism in uh, the New Testament. Uh, you see it in the case of the Philippian jailer, I think, when it says both he and who? His whole household, right? His family. They, they were baptized uh, into the faith of Jesus Christ. But to sort of return to the other rabbit trail we were on, I mean, that's why we have confirmation in our church. Um, confirmation is not when the bishop prays for the confirmand. Confirmation is what? When they stand up and they confirm the vows that were made on their behalf at baptism and they own them themselves. Right? When they confirm it and they say, those vows that were made for me at baptism, do you turn to Jesus Christ and, as accept, and accept Him as your Savior? And those questions are asked, the confirmands, uh, they now say, I do. Right? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. This is their opportunity to stand before the people of God and to say, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus. That's the confirmation. And then as a response to that, the bishop representing the church, right, because it's bigger than just the advent, uh, the bishop prays for them, uh, lays his hands on them and prays for them that they would be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit and that they would continue in the faith that they had just now professed. And so, when it comes to baptism in the New Testament, when it comes to the baptism of adults, uh, they have received the Spirit, uh, but these are outliers, the Samaritans, the uh, Ephesians, uh, John disciples here, and in the case of uh, Paul and Peter. Now, when they say that they've never heard of the Holy Spirit, that's not true, literally speaking. Uh, they actually had heard of the Holy Spirit as He is in the Old Testament. 
Uh, you can see the Holy Spirit and read of the Holy Spirit. You hear of the Spirit of God coming upon the kings and the prophets of Israel uh, through the ages. Uh, in the beginning, what hovered over the face of the earth? The Spirit. Uh, so they would have been aware of that, but they never had heard of the fulfillment of what John the Baptist had prophesied. Uh, they had never heard uh, the, the definitive claim. I don't know whether they weren't there by the River Jordan on the day that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins uh, of the world. Um, I don't know. But when they, find, when they received the baptism of Jesus in the name of the Trinity, uh, when they, they then experienced a mini Pentecost, or better yet, Pentecost caught up with them. Pentecost caught up with them. And so they begin to, uh, as we see this, they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. And it says, and there were 12 men in all. That's not a magic number. That's not supposed to symbolize anything. It just means there were a dozen guys, right? It just means there are a dozen guys. So don't read too much into that. But is speaking in tongues and prophesying the normative experience when the Holy Spirit comes into your life? No. It's not. You know, I, I'm one of those that I wish that, um, that I had a more um, emotional, uh, deep, elaborative experiences uh, in the life of the Spirit, although I have experienced Him in my life time and time again, and I know that He lives within me. Uh, but, you know, I, you know, like even in my testimony, my testimony seems pretty boring, right? Pretty much grew up in the church, came to a place where I had to make the faith of my childhood, you know, I had to appropriate it for myself and went through a rocky patch in college, but God never let go of me. And, you know, I'm just like, you know, couldn't I have joined a motorcycle gang or, you know, um, you know, threw puppies off bridges or gone through a real, you know, nasty phase? I don't know. Uh, you know, that, those seem to be more effective, but actually they aren't, right? Because most of us in here are... Abby's rolling her eyes, but he killed parakeets. He was talking about dead parakeets uh, two weeks ago. So, um, uh, but that's, those are actually the most powerful testimonies because they resonate with so many of us, right? Because that, that's our story. Uh, and in the same way, uh, the normative uh, experience uh, for most uh, believers is this. You repent, you come to faith in the Lord Jesus, and if you haven't been baptized already, you are baptized, and then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. An unbaptized believer is scarcely contemplated in the New Testament. Just non-existent. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and yet I run into them all the time. I mean, you hear us say before, normally uh, before we receive Holy Communion that what? All... Baptized Christians may come, who have been baptized in the name of the Trinity uh, are warmly invited to come forward and uh, receive uh, communion with us regardless of your denominational background. Now, what that really means is all believers in the Lord Jesus are invited to come forward. If you profess faith in the Lord Jesus, which is why the old prayer book says, uh, those of you uh, who are uh, repentant and are in love and shared with your neighbor, uh, draw near with faith and receive this sacrament devoutly kneeling. Uh, but that's because there's an understanding that if you're a believer, you are baptized, right? There, there's, there's no separation uh, in that. And so every once in a while, I'll run into somebody who says, you know, I, I feel like I can't take communion because I've not been baptized. Well, that's not actually that big a deal because 
like the Ethiopian eunuch, who incidentally, when he received the Holy Spirit and was baptized, what did he do? He went back to Ethiopia. You know, no, no tongues, no prophecy. He just simply became an evangelist for the Lord Jesus. Uh, but hey, look, there's water. And so if you look in our bulletin now, there's a little blurb that says, uh, if you've not been baptized, see one of the ministers after the service, and we'll take care of that Navy Hospital San Diego style, and, uh, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll make that happen. And uh, probably every other month, I baptize at least one adult right after the service. It just, it, it, it happens. And sometimes people come forward, and we're getting more of this of, I know I've never been baptized, or I don't know. I mean, I think I might have been, but, but maybe not. Uh, and so uh, there's nothing, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, and you've not been baptized, uh, you need to be baptized, right? Following the commandment of Jesus himself, uh, but also is an outward sign of your being incorporated and grafted into uh, the body uh, of Christ. Uh, now, if you're not baptized and you die, uh, you're not going to go to hell, right? That, that's not what, what gets you in, but faith in the Lord Jesus. Um, the, the good thief on the cross, what did Jesus say to him? You'll be with me this day in paradise, Right? And I didn't see anybody running up and dousing them, right? It didn't happen. And so it's saving faith in the Lord Jesus. But I know that if that thief had, been, uh, had lived uh, and uh, they stayed his execution, he too would have been baptized by the commandment of Jesus. Okay. So what then is the primary work of the Holy Spirit? Uh, in the Trinity... Nobody has a particular domain over any particular act. So at the same time, though, there are things that seem to be primary but not exclusive acts of different members of the Trinity. So God the Father seems to be more involved in the act of creation. Uh, Jesus the Son in redemption uh, and so what is the primary work of the Holy Spirit? By the way, this is, um, because of this, you have to be very careful because when uh, the new prayer book comes out and it's already happening in the church, you know, they're going to take out Blessed Be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's already, that's already, and it will be replaced by Blessed Be God, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. Right? And but the problem with that, by saying that, is that you begin, the reason why we use language like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that it actually has a better understanding of who God is uh, in three persons. Because when you say Creator, Sust Redeemer, Sustainer, it makes it sound as if that God the Father has absolutely nothing to do with the redemption of the world or sustaining the world, or that the Son had nothing to do with the creation. He just kind of sat that one out. Uh, and when it comes to sustaining, uh, he has nothing to do with it. And that the Spirit of God was not uh, in the midst of, of creating the world and certainly wasn't working uh, through the redemptive purposes of God, uh, even throughout the ages. And so we have to be very careful about confining them. And yet we do see particular works of different members of the Trinity in the Bible. And so what we see, and John 16 is a really good place to go for this, John 16 verses... 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Uh, now, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, 
But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. That's what he does. When the Lord Jesus is is exalted, the Holy Spirit is at work. Well, how does the Holy Spirit glorify the Lord Jesus? Well, he does it through the Word of God, the Bible. Uh, We've just read that here, uh, teaching about him in the Scriptures, uh, and that he is relaying the truth of who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. And when it came after the Gospels, we have the epistles, Uh, And it was the Holy Spirit who guided the human agents who helped write the New Testament, keeping them from error. And Peter testifies to this uh, in a key verse, 2 Peter. When's the last time we read 2 Peter? Good grief. Um, 2 Peter 1.21, where Peter says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, who is Peter talking about? Paul? James? Right? He's talking about John, uh, the authors, uh, the human authors of the New Testament, uh, keeping them um, from error. Because I can only imagine uh, what life would be like for me if God said, hey, I just want you to sit down and write what you think the interpretation of the Gospels ought to be. It would look really good in my favor, I would hope, uh, if if I did that. Uh, But the thing about it is, is that when it comes to Christianity, it makes it very different from any other world religion or philosophy. It's sort of like, I think we talked about this a while back, but, you know, when Plato talks about Socrates, the gift that Socrates had is he was able to teach in such a way that he brought people to the realization of what they already knew deep down inside. Right, you sort of think, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's right, I, I know that. Christianity is totally from the outside. So when Jesus is saying what he's saying and he's doing what he's doing, it's not something that, we, that is confirmed uh, by our inner being, at least apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Right? It's a word from outside of us that is implanted in us. And so uh, the unpacking of who Jesus is and what He does uh, is fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament, Uh, meaning after John's Gospel and after the Acts of the Apostles, then you've got, you know, Romans, right? Then you've got uh, uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians and so on and so forth. Uh, Because, uh, you know, okay, we say that Jesus died. Well, everybody dies. Why he died is the issue, and that is what is taken up in the epistles, uh, the implication of Jesus' death uh, on the cross. Now, one of the bigger things that I run into when it comes to the Holy Spirit guiding us into all truth is that um, many conceive of religion largely as a pattern of ideas and of salvation as learning certain things or doing certain things. Christianity has ideas, that's true, but the ideas are based on what God has actually done, and that is determinative. The historical basis of Christianity cuts it off from the evolutionary view of religion, the view that thousands of years ago, 
men and women had primitive ideas about God that grew as their knowledge grew and that their writings about God showed this development. And this is, this is something that has continued to the present. Uh, we can drop what we consider to be unworthy concepts of God and add others that we believe to be more valuable. Jesus, on the other hand, taught that far from being disposable, God's own action in history is the very basis of His revelation to men and women. And this is seen most clearly in Jesus' cross, where God did not just teach an idea, He did something. He atoned for sin, He revealed His love, and He showed judgment. And so the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. He also glorifies Jesus by drawing people to faith in Him. We've, we've talked about that. Apart from the Holy Spirit, no one would ever come to faith in Jesus Christ. You simply can't work it out on your own rationally. Uh, otherwise, uh, what would be the excuse for not being a Christian? Because think about it, just from a pragmatic perspective. I mean, fire insurance, right? You know, just kind of... You know, and, and it could be true, so why wouldn't you hedge your bets? So the person that's not a Christian, would you look at them and say, well, your problem is you're just stupid? No. It has nothing to do with that. It's not, Christianity is not a rational pursuit. Uh, it's about God intervening in our lives and opening our eyes uh, to His grace and His mercy. And only by that can we turn uh, and face Him and enter into uh, relationship uh, with Him. The Holy Spirit also makes us more like Jesus. You can see the fruit of the Spirit in uh, Galatians 5. And remember, this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is not individual fruits of the Spirit. But the key thing to understand about how the Holy Spirit makes us more and more in the image of God is, one, understanding that every day you wake up, you know that the Holy Spirit is at work if you understand more and more your need of Him. Right? If you're just getting better morally and you think, today I need a little bit less of the Holy Spirit, a little bit less of Jesus, you're going in the wrong direction. The other thing is that when the Holy Spirit talks about fruit, it uses a very specific word. It uses the word that Christians bear fruit. But a lot of Christians think that it says produce fruit. We don't produce anything. The Holy Spirit acts like the sap in a tree and we simply bear the fruit that He has produced. And so the fruit that we have is not ours in the first place. It's something that God uh, does through us, which means what? It's about Him and not about us. Because I'll tell you, even when i am got the fruit of the Spirit working in my life, I want some acknowledgement, right? I, I want, I want so, you know, deep down inside in my sinful heart, I want someone to come up and applaud me for my humility and patience. I just do. I, I, and it doesn't it bother you when you've done a really good thing and, and you're kind of like, you know, like, hey. You know, like, and Jesus had something to say about that. He said, well, if you want your acknowledgement here on earth, you got it. Your reward is here. But store up for yourself what? Treasures in heaven. Right? Treasures in heaven. Uh, when you pray, don't pray in verbose manner and uh, publicly and wear sackcloth and ashes, but what? Go in a closet. Now, I don't think that that means that you actually have to go into uh, a closet, uh, but uh, what it means is that uh, you're, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're intentionally trying to put 
righteousness on display, it's almost 100% of the time going to be self-righteousness and not the righteousness of God. Jesus said the left hand ought not to know what the right hand is doing. And then finally what the Holy Spirit does is He sends us out uh, as uh, He is doing here in Acts, that in response to our faith, uh, we go and tell the village everything uh, that Jesus has uh, done uh, for us. And He goes before us. Uh, and so to bring it full circle, when we have those conversations with people and we wonder whether or not they're a Christian, um, do you ever, you know, do we understand that God the Holy Spirit has gone before us and that even if this person becomes a Christian, it's not because of our eloquence, but because God has actually brought them to faith, but you are the means by which they've been brought to faith. And so God is going before you in all that He does. It's not sort of Him catching up later on, although He does follow after you, uh, but it's His work uh, and not ours. So I'm just going to stop there and open it up for questions, comments, or even concerns. I know the same word is used for ghost, say in German, but as spirit, but to me there's no, there's a dis very distinction from saying ghost and spirit as it relates to our faith. And so why are we using ghost now? Why do we use ghost? Well, because, uh, I, one, because it's part of our language, just the, the way that English is developed in the, in the King James Bible. Um, we, we recently had the feast day for um, William Tyndale. Do you all know who he is? He was a Bible translator. And actually, it was Tyndale that translated and created words like scapegoat, atonement. They didn't really exist uh, until he, the ideas existed, but he finally put them in word form. And so those words have really uh, stuck uh, in us. But I do think that, yeah, I mean, one thing that we want people to know is that what the Bible teaches is the Holy Spirit of God is not an it. It's not the force. You know, it's not, uh, it's not Star Wars. Uh, he is a person. And so it's very funny. I had a lady come up to me one time, and she said, I finally understood that uh, it's a person. I'm like, you still don't get that he is a person. Uh, and I even fall into it too, calling the Holy Spirit it, when in fact he's a personal individual. So I think that maybe in our own language, spirit conveys that better uh, than ghost. Because when I say ghost, you think either, you know, Halloween boogeyman or Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze molding a clay pot. Uh, but either way, man, that's an old, how long ago was that? Lauren loves my 1980s references. I actually talked about Fashion Bug Plus the other day. So. Is that still right? Andrew, can you just talk a little bit more about what's happening when we baptize our infants? Are you worried about yours? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So when we're, we are bringing them into the covenant community, into the body of Christ, and we take a vow. So we have godparents that stand up there, but y'all are totally on the hook. I don't know if you knew this. I mean, maybe you should not take this vow, but will you do all in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ? And you say, we will, right? You say we will, but do we, right? Because the understanding is that it's not like, oh, they're baptized, they're, they're done, but uh, just like parenting, you got to stick with it. And so the congregation takes a vow and says, I'm going to stick with this child 
and I'm going to help disciple them so that they can one day appropriate these vows for themselves. And so because baptism and faith can't be separated, I relate to the baptized child, to the baptized person, as if they're a Christian because I do believe that God will call them to faith in Him. Right? I don't assume it, but I have faith that He will do it. And so I relate to them on that purpose. So one of the questions that I get, it's a very good one, well then what, should my kids receive communion? Or should they come up with a, for a blessing? And I think that, you know, some people have said, well, I want my child to be able to, it used to be that you had to be confirmed. And it wasn't because magically, I mean, because confirmation has easily become a bar mitzvah for Gentiles, right? They turn 13 and you just kind of go through the motions. Uh, but it's more than that here, I hope. But the reason why it used to be confirmation was that was really the first opportunity that a child was given to declare their faith before the congregation. And, and so it's not an issue of, well, when my, when my children can articulate what's happening in communion, will I let them go forward and receive? Well, good grief. Who among us would qualify for that one? Right? What if I asked each of you, what do you think is happening during Holy Communion? Right? That's a, but if your children are professing faith in the Lord Jesus, if they're putting their trust in Him, they should come forward and receive uh, without hesitation. Uh, and so that uh, baptism is the beginning of the road and confirmation is sort of bringing it full circle. And so it sets them apart in the covenant community, but that baptism can never be divorced from faith. And so we pray that God does draw them to faith because there are those who are baptized outwardly, but they've not been baptized inwardly by the Holy Spirit. Is there confirmation in the Bible? Is that biblical? Not confirm. Yeah, if y'all need to go for the 11 o'clock, not confirmation specifically, but there is the overwhelming weight and testimony of people declaring their faith in public making known who they are. Uh, and, uh, and so th that's a sort of confirmation, yeah. So it's never just baptism one and done, but let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So that's the, if you confess with, if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? One more. One more up, oh, yep. You mentioned earlier about where does the Father first come in? Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned that in, in terms of baptizing babies and children. And I have, correct my error, but I have always thought that that was, that babies were born with the Father in them and that baptism was our commitment to help them realize and grow from that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not, you know, we are, we're all made in the image of God. We, we bear that resemblance, but I, it would be very difficult to make an argument from the Bible that there's sort of a divine spark within us that needs to be fueled and tendered and, and brought uh, awake. So the, the image that we're given in the Bible is that we're dead in our trespasses, right? It's not that we're even severely hindered, but we're dead. And so what needs to happen is that we need to be brought to new life. I mean, the most visible image of this is Lazarus in the tomb. Right? Lazarus is dead. Like Lazarus isn't sitting there and saying, I'm going to will myself. And no matter what encouragement he got outside of the tomb, apart from Jesus, he wasn't going to get up. It took the word, 
Lazarus come out to animate him again and for him to actually come out of the tomb. And so what sparks typically, and, and I don't want to, look, I'm, I'm not one of those guys who thinks that the gifts of the Spirit are, are dead and gone. I don't think that. Um, because I do think that there are situations where, you know, you, I, I've run into people who are Chinese evangelists, and they came to faith because one day another evangelist came to the village, and they start talking about Jesus, and he says, that's the guy I've been dreaming about. That's the guy that's been speaking. I think that that kind of stuff does happen. But the normative pattern is that people come to faith through the Word. And so, again, it's that sort of funny Babylon Bee uh, headline that said, uh, parents uh, dumbfounded that children are not Christians uh, because of their lack of attendance at church. Uh, and then they go on to talk about how they never took their kids to church. They just kind of thought that they would become Christians by osmosis or that they would just kind of come to it on their own. And so faith is something that has to be instilled uh, in us. And I think that that instilling and that nurturing comes from the Holy Spirit of God from outside of us. But God uses us as the means to nurture that. And so I would again say that, yeah, we're made in the image of God, and which means we ought to respect the dignity of every human being. Absolutely. But we're not de facto people of faith. We have to be called to faith and respond to that call. But we can talk later if you want. Thank you. All right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. I'm late.